Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello, my dear audience. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And you can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, GoodPods, Pandora. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As far as social media, I am on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as Let's Talk Micro, on X as Let's Talk Micro 1, on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza, and I have an email address which is letstalkmicro at outlook.com. So either via social media or via email, you can reach out with any feedback, any topic suggestions. They are always welcome and appreciated. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, and if the app allows you to do so, please leave a review. Thank you so much for the support. I am always grateful. And if you haven't checked out the previous episode, please go ahead and do so. It was about next generation sequencing or NGS. And those of you that work in the lab, you know that's a trending topic. There are more labs that are starting to bring it to identify organisms. So it was a great time to bring two guests from Advent Health Orlando that they implemented NGS in their microbiology laboratory. So they talk about the whole validation process, what organisms they use, the challenges. And it was great. You know, one of them was Daniel Navas, which is a, he's a technical coordinator and a medical laboratory scientist. So it was great seeing a medical laboratory scientist get involved in this type of project. And that goes to show how much we can do as medical laboratory scientists, how much we can learn, how much we can grow, what type of projects we can be involved in. And Daniel himself admits that at the beginning of this project, you know, he didn't know much about the subject, but he did what a good microbiologist does, which is he did the research, he watched videos, and at the end, he came up with a really good understanding of the topic. So definitely always make sure that, right, you use your resources, you do your research, and that's how we grow as microbiologists. And before I move on to today's episode, as I have said before, antibiotics, that's a lot of information. So if you are looking to learn more about antibiotics, please check out www.learnantibiotics.com and the Learn Antibiotics book available on Amazon. These resources include cheat sheets, practice tests, games, and more. They are being used by thousands of people worldwide and may be helpful for you or your colleagues. And these are great resources from Dr. Timothy Gauthier, who's a very passionate pharmacist. So I definitely invite you to check out these resources. So today's episode is one that maybe some of you have been waiting for, which is the next episode in the AMR subseries. And this one is about aminoglycosides. And as you know, the goal of the AMR subseries is about breaking down antimicrobials, you know, breaking down all this information. And we have started by going over the different classes. So we did an episode about beta-lactams. Then we did an episode about fluoroquinolones. And this one now is about aminoglycosides. So as usual in the series, Andrea Princey joins me as a co-host. And then we have a guest who's Dr. Patrick McDaniel. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Great information about aminoglycosides. As always, we talk about things like mechanism of action, intrinsic resistance, and we invite you to definitely check out the CLSI M100 if you haven't already. I also ask the question that I normally ask, if you can use the interpretation of one drug and apply that to another drug. All in all, a great episode. I always enjoy recording these. You know, it's always great recording with Andrea Princey, and I hope that they are a big benefit for you. 
I have been getting some good feedback about them. And if you have any suggestions, anything that you would like us to go over, please send those either via social media or via email. All in all, a great episode, very informative. I hope you enjoy it. Let's go ahead and listen to it. If you have been waiting for the next episode of the AMR subseries of the podcast, well, this is the episode for you, and it is finally here. And before I start, if you haven't checked out the previous episodes about beta-lactams and fluoroquinolones, please go ahead and check them out. As always, we break them down, we go over mechanism of action, things like intrinsic resistance, we reference the CLSIM 100. So, as always on the AMR series, uh, with me, I have my co-host, Andrea Prinzi. Andrea, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. How are you? Hi, Louise. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Pretty good. Definitely very, very excited about you know recording the next episode in the series. I know. I've missed doing this. I feel like it's been forever. Things have been really crazy busy. And on that note, hey, did you say, are you working on school? Are you working on a, a master's degree or something? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I definitely am. I I basically have had no life for the past two years. <laughs> going. What is it focused on? I don't think you've mentioned this on the podcast before. I think people should know how awesome you are. Yeah. So I started, uh, you know, like I, I mentioned to the audience, you know, I like teaching. And so I started a master's in microbiology back in 2021. That's awesome. And still working full time. So I just take one class at a time. And I've been teaching at UCF, the lab since uh, 2019, University of Central Florida for the audience. So I'm doing about four things at once. So if that wasn't enough, you know, master's teaching full-time job, I started a podcast. <laughs> so. And you keep up with it, like very regularly, <laughs> which is amazing. Yes. When people ask me, how, like, how often do you publish episodes? And I say weekly, they look at me like, a, like something is wrong. Like, <laughs> how do you do that? So it's just, I don't know, the consistency. And by now I'm very organized and I'm used to it. But with the master's, you know, I'll, I'll finally be done in... December of this year. Congratulations. So proud of you. You're so awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. So um, for the audience, as you know, when we do the AMR subseries, well, we, we've been bringing guests. So for this episode, we have a guest, of course. So uh, Andrew, can you want to introduce our guest? I would love to. I'm very excited about this one. Not that I have not been excited about all the others, to be clear. I love all of our guests, but um, Dr. Patrick McDonald, he does not like me to call him Dr. McDonald, but he certainly is Dr. McDonald, uh, is a very, very good friend of mine and a brilliant mind, wonderful infectious diseases colleague uh, who I am fortunate enough to work with at BMRU. Uh, so he's a medical advisor at BMRU focused on clinical infectious diseases. But before he joined BMRU, he was an infectious diseases clinical pharmacy specialist at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And that's located in Houston, for those that don't know. And in addition to participating in direct patient care, he served as the antibiotic stewardship team pharmacy lead and the infectious diseases pharmacy residency program coordinator. His areas of research interest include antimicrobial therapy and stewardship in immunocompromised patients. He has several publications in these areas, uh, but notably, I would say that uh, Patrick's really become my right-hand guy when it comes to talking about um, susceptibility test breakpoint updates, doing things in the clinical laboratory. And I think as everyone knows, I love working with infectious disease pharmacists and he's just a wonderful, um, wonderful guy who's really able to speak lab and ID pharmacy. So I'm really excited to have him join us today because I think he's going to give us some really cool perspectives. So welcome, Patrick. 
Thank you very much for the, the very sweet introduction. Definitely very happy, to, very happy to have you. So thank you for, for taking the time and participating in this. My pleasure. Um, so today's episode, it's about aminoglycosides. So by now, this is the third class that we are covering. Um, if you are keeping track or listening to the episodes. So uh, Patrick, can you give us a general description of the aminoglycoside group? Sure. Uh, it's interesting in that it's actually one of the oldest um, antimicrobial classes that we're still using. Uh, their initial discovery was in the 1940s, um, and they were actively being developed uh, with some frequency all the way through um, the late 70s with most of the agents that we use clinically today, uh, at least coming to market in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s. And then there's one very late straggler uh, in 2018 uh, that we'll talk about a little bit later that came uh, much after kind of everyone else moved on from aminoglycosides. Uh, in terms of understanding where they come from, uh, they are all of them are at least their original parent molecule is isolated from two uh, bacterial groups, and that, so that's Streptomyces and uh, Micromonospora. And the, the naming convention of the aminoglycoside actually tells you uh, where they were originated from, either as a truly natural compound or something that was uh, modified from something the organism was already expressing. And so those that end in MYCIN, were originally from Streptomyces and MICIN are from the Micromonospora species. And they, they've really had this kind of wild transition in their role over time too, which is unique amongst antimicrobials because they've been around for so long and being one of the first readily available antimicrobials, they actually used to be a very common monotherapy agent uh, because there really wasn't anything else we could give people. Whereas today with a few rare exceptions that really they're uh, an adjunctive therapy that's sort of the sprinkles on the cupcake that is a beta-lactam or some other core agent that patients are being treated with. Well, um, you know, thank you for the the little bit of the historical overview. I always love that when we start, you know, from the way, way back and so we have like a better understanding. So for the medical uh, laboratory scientists and microbiologists that are listening to this, right? So, you know, we're talking about aminoglycosides and as you are thinking, you know, we, we do the testing and we see all these drugs, this panel on our screens. And so what drugs are included in the aminoglycosides? From a susceptibility testing standpoint, at least in the U.S., you're really only going to see three with any any frequency. And that's gentamicin, tobramycin, and amikacin. And those are by far and away the most common clinically used aminoglycosides, especially when you think about agents that are given intravenously for, for truly systemic therapy. There are some other aminoglycosides that have some very um, targeted uses. So uh, neomycin is actually very widely used, but it is also turns out to be extraordinarily toxic when given IV. And so it is really limited to topical formulations. And so neosporin, one of the key ingredients of that is neomycin. And so every day when people use this over-the-counter antibiotic, they're actually using an aminoglycoside. And then there's also some oral non-absorbable forms of neomycin as well that are used for uh, gastrointestinal decontamination. Uh, outside of that, uh, plazomycin is the most recent member of the aminoglycoside family. It came out in 2018. Uh, it was a, a modified version originating out of gentamicin uh, that was really targeting towards uh, MDR uh, enterobacterialis pathogens. Uh, it was unfortunately for it kind of poorly timed. It came out at, at a time when we were actually getting a lot of other novel agents that were much less toxic that don't come with the toxicity baggage of aminoglycosides. And so I, it sort of fell flat. 
uh, it was available, but uh, even at a center like where I used to work, where we basically had access to every antimicrobial, we almost never used it. And so if, if places like cancer centers aren't using it, your average community hospital is just never going to reach for it. And so it, it really has kind of fallen by the wayside. Uh, and the only other one I think is worth mentioning in the family uh, that you may see from time to time, probably not so much in the lab because there's really not susceptibility testing for it, but it is clinically relevant is peromomycin. And it really gets at the the wide spectrum of activity from aminoglycosides. Peromomycin is an oral uh, drug and it's used for intestinal amoebas and cryptosporidium infections. And so it, these drugs can cover everything from staph to E. coli, pseudomonas, uh, some of the other non-fermenters, and then into these kind of weird, more atypical organisms that aren't things that we see infections with every day, at least in the US, thankfully. Okay. And that's the, that's something that definitely the the audience can identify with at some point in time. You know, everyone pretty much has has used neosporing, so that's you know uh, cool to learn that. Um, so you know, it's always good understanding the mechanism of action. You know, sometimes you know some drugs they target the cell wall, some DNA, some RNA, some protein protein synthesis. So, what is the mechanism of action of the aminoglycosides? Sure, and so these are as you mentioned a. Uh, a, a very classical mechanism. They target um, they target the bacterial ribosome, specifically the 30S subunit. And so they basically sit inside the pocket while the ribosome is trying to translate the mRNA into protein and block part of that process. And so you end up with these either truncated proteins where it just stops reading it or it, it mis uh, inserts the wrong uh, amino acid or it skips amino acids, and so you basically end up producing mountains of non-functional proteins, which end up clogging up the cell, uh, ultimately leading to um, bacterial stasis. And aminoglycosides, if given long enough, can be cytal. And so there's a, a little bit of controversy around what they do beyond that in terms of um, mucking with some of the channels that exist in the bacterial cell wall. But really, their, their core activity is driven by interfering with um, the ribosome and production of proteins. Um, and so as far as for which which organisms this uh, antibiotic group treats? We touched a little bit on this, and I, so I think that's what's interesting about them is, is they actually, compared to a lot of antibiotics, have a very, very broad potential uh, group of organisms that they can be useful for. And so especially early on before we started limiting to adjunct therapy, they were used for everything for a number of gram-positive species, really the classical uses are for uh, staph species and enterococci. And we'll, we can circle back to enterococci because they, they drive some specialty testing within the lab that I'm sure everybody is familiar with. And then really where they find the bulk of their use today clinically is on the gram-negative. So for enterobacterialis and, and pseudomonas specifically, and then occasionally people will try them for things outside of that. Um, but once you get beyond kind of the the classic and common pathogens, you can run into some intrinsic resistance. Okay, and I'm I'm very happy that you actually that you mentioned that because that's something that I always want to make uh, medical lab scientists aware about the intrinsic resistance. And sometimes you know, most of the times you know the ALS already has have certain rules when it comes to intrinsic resistance. It hides the the antibiotics, and but you can always you know get a request of something that maybe you don't perform. Sometimes, you know, these things happen and you're the only one in the lab and you just go, okay, well, go ahead and set it up. And you might not be aware that the organism is intrinsically resistant to that antibiotic. Um, so is there any intrinsic resistance when it comes to, to the aminoglycosides? 
Yeah, there are, are a couple of big groups of things that are, are worth talking about. And I think, as you mentioned, really, uh, from a, a lab technologist standpoint, I think stopping and looking at the M100 to see what they recommend. Uh, this is with an Appendix B for the M100, where they basically provide a very quick reference for common intrinsic resistance issues. So in terms of the M100, the, the Appendix B will cover the very common uh, bug drug combinations. And so they have a, they will have a, a, a discrete column for aminoglycosides. And it will cover some of the common issues. They won't get into some of the more um, individual species that are less commonly isolated within that table, but it certainly is a good place to start. Uh, in terms of aminoglycosides specifically, the really the, the biggest category where there's just intrinsic resistance is anaerobes. Anaerobes as a, as a broad category are resistant to the clinical use of aminoglycosides because they require um, aerobic cellular respiration for part of their transport to get into the cell. And so for anaerobes, they're just not expressing the right uh, molecules and proteins within their cell wall to allow the translocation of the antibiotic into the cell to get to the ribosome. Um, in terms of other gram negatives, uh, there's a couple big ones to remember. So Stenotrophomonas, uh, Burkholderia species, and Acromobacter are all basically considered intrinsically resistant. Every once in a blue moon, you might find one where the MIC is low, but, but realistically, uh, they are not functionally uh, useful to treat those organisms. And then there's a couple other interesting ones. Um, there's one Providentia species that isn't considered intrinsically resistant to gentamicin, and that's, that is notated in the M100 if that ever comes up. Uh, and then in terms of enterococcus, essentially all enterococcal species have this low-level aminoglycoside resistance. And so that's why if you're doing aminoglycoside testing for enterococcus in the lab, you're specifically looking at that high-level uh, resistance uh, phenotype to, to decide whether or not we're able to use these for synergy clinically. Uh, and then there's also serratia is typically uh, resistant to just tobramycin. Uh, there are occasions where it is susceptible, but by and large, it, it, you shouldn't be seeing susceptible results there. So Patrick, this is, as you're going through all this, this is making me think about, like, I feel like there's so much to think about here. You've, you've noted how these really cover a broad range of organisms, but there's certain toxicities, toxicities with some of them uh, as compared to others, or maybe there's intrinsic resistance to think about. So why would a clinician choose one aminoglycoside over another? Like, is there one that you feel like is more commonly used? And then why is that one picked? Or is it, is it guessing? Is it random? <laughs> uh, so for these, because they've been relegated to this sort of adjunct therapy role, a lot of hospitals will only keep one or two on formulary. And so oftentimes people will sort of pick uh, one or the other based on a couple key things. One, if you're doing um, synergy treatment for a gram-positive organism, that's almost exclusively with gentamicin. Uh, and then the pediatric crowd is also very big into gentamicin because they have the most robust data and experience with that aminoglycoside in their very vulnerable patient population. So they are, they are very attached to gentamicin because they're so familiar with it. Um, once you get beyond that, then it's a little bit more of a grab bag in terms of what you have available. Uh, and then really, more than anything, you should probably be looking at your, your local antibiogram to decide, uh, I know I have a pseudomonas and I want to give an aminoglycoside, which one is the best at my facility. The real trouble with these is the, the resistance mechanisms for these. Uh, there are a couple, but the, the big driver is enzymatic deactivation of, of the aminoglycoside mo molecule itself, where it no longer can kind of fit into the ribosome and cause this protein um, production issue. And so these enzymes are incredibly variable. They um, can kind of have a random assortment of effects across the aminoglycosides. One might be better at at modifying tobermycin, but not so good at amicacin or vice versa. And so you, it's a little hard to predict sometimes exactly what you're going to get 
on a susceptibility profile. Broad, broad picture, generally speaking, uh, the MICs tend to get, or the susceptibility tends to be the best for amicacin, then probably Tobra, and then probably Gent. But there's a lot of shades of gray around your local patient population, uh, the level of pretreatment with aminoglycosides that you're seeing, the specific organisms that you're treating. And so really, it, it takes somebody who's pretty attuned to what's going on in their population to make those decisions. And if you look at um, the big multinational guidelines, they often talk about adding aminoglycosides sort of as adjunctive therapy, almost like a category. They don't necessarily tell you which one to use because they would like you to go and, and make sure that you're picking the right one for your particular facility. Great. I think actually before, Louise, I think you have another question, but I'm thinking about this as I, Patrick just keeps saying little gems that make me think about other things. You mentioned synergy testing just a couple times. Patrick, would you be willing to just elaborate on what that is exactly a little bit more for the audience? Sure. So in, synergy testing really is, is driven around endococcus. And so I, uh, because they have this innate low level of resistance, they've never been effective drugs for enterococcus alone, but there's really good data to, to support using them with a cell wall active agent. So you're basically using something like a beta-lactam to help break up the cell wall of the enterococcus and allow aminoglycosides uh, enhanced penetration in so they can get really high concentrations in the cell that they might not get on their own. And so and when you look at something like enterococcus, you know, an, a normal or a non-anarchical organism, a normal MIC, you know, might be one or two, but when we're talking about high-level resistance testing, you're talking about, you know, into the hundreds. And so it really, it's a it's a very specialty-level testing. I think that the trouble there is that really adjunctive aminoglycosides for anarchocus are also starting to fall out of favor because we've come up with alternative therapy regimens that are much better tolerated clinically. And so we're sort of moving away even for some of these very classical aminoglycoside indications and, and choosing other things because long administration courses of aminoglycosides are, are often quite toxic. They can cause renal dysfunction, they can cause ototoxicity and a number of other adverse effects. And so if we can pick something else, almost every clinician would pick something else to give. That's really helpful. Thank you. I, I asked too, because I think, you know, if you I think laboratorians are maybe used to seeing things on panels or cards and then down the road, maybe these things go away. So it's really helpful to know what's sort of falling out of favor in the clinical community. You know, you may have seen some genomycin synergy or something on a panel before, uh, but maybe that's not on future, you know, for susceptibility testing, maybe that's not available in the future and, and folks might wonder why. So I think that's really helpful to understand that. Sorry, Louise, I didn't mean to take over the question. <laughs> no, no, oh. that was great. Yeah. Um, so one question that I, 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 I like to ask, and definitely we are telling the audience to so please go ahead and check out the, the M100. You can, in your lab, you can see that binder there and you might be familiar with it, or you can just go online and search for it and you have it, the M100 is free. And I always invite techs to just go ahead and as you're getting ready for your work day, just, you know, save it on your favorites, open it. And that way, you know, you, you're sitting there reading your plates, you have a question, you can go and check it. So much information more than way more than you know, intrinsic resistance, and you can find out what, what medium you can use for uh, setting susceptibilities, you know, incubation temperature, recommended drugs, so, so much information. So one question that I like to ask, uh, Patrick, is that sometimes, you know, as we're reading the CLSI, we see things like, for example, with when you look at tetracycline that it says, right, it's organisms, for, for some organisms, like if it's susceptible to tetracycline, it can be considered susceptible to doxycycline. So that brings the question that, uh, can you use the result for one aminoglycoside and apply that interpretation 
to another aminoglycoside or not? Uh, there are not official rules for making that extrapolation. And a lot of that comes back to what we were talking about a minute ago, where the, these enzymes that deactivate the functionality of aminoglycoside, the drug, are so variable that it really is hard to know exactly which uh, susceptibility pattern you're going to see. Uh, broadly speaking, if something is resistant to amication, the likelihood of it being susceptible to the other ones outside of plasomycin are not, is not high. But it is at least possible, and it may be worth testing if there's a really a clinical need to be using those as an adjunct of therapy for those patients. So folks probably aren't going to find anything official about that in the M100, though. No, and I, I think the example you gave of tetracycline, when I think about inferring resistance to other drugs from a single drug, I think tetracycline is probably the, the best example because it is just so clear-cut if it's tetra susceptible, there are so many other drugs that you can extrapolate from that. Unfortunately for the aminoglycosides, it's a little bit more of a grab bag. Uh, you know, and in thinking about these enzymes, uh, they get so confusing in terms of their spectrum that there's even one that can also deactivate quinolones and still maintains its aminoglycoside affinity. And so the spectrum of what these enzymes can do and how and which aminoglycosides they bind to is it, just so variable that there's not really a, a reliable way to know for sure. I think broad broad scale, I think you can kind of get some guess. Like I said, if it's an amication resistant, the odds of it being susceptible to the other is not great. And, or if it's plasomycin resistant, the odd of, odds of it being susceptible to the others is not great, but there's always exceptions to those rules. And so I, usually I would say it, it is probably worth humoring the clinician and testing if they're asking. I think that's really helpful because Luis talks about this a lot on, on other episodes, but you know, it's not, not, I would say infrequent that clinicians may call the lab and say, Hey, you know, do you have this? Could I assume that for this? Um, and so then I think sometimes laboratorians feel stuck, especially if they're not referencing the M100 and there's not a clear statement in there. Um, so that's why we always really stress referencing the M100 because anything that's really clear cut with the data to support it would probably be in there, right? Right, and I think for the for the lab's perspective, if, if the M100 is not saying that you should do that at 100%, they should just say like, look, we don't have good rules for that. We should probably just test it for you and, and cut to the chase and, and move on so they don't end up in a situation where they're sort of venturing off of uh, what CLSI recommends. That's, that's great. Speaking of testing, um, you know, I'm going to have to talk about breakpoints here. And I think that AST breakpoint updates for aminoglycosides might be particularly messy, but I'd, I'd love your opinion on this. So first of all, um, what has happened with aminoglycoside breakpoints and why? Sure. Uh, this is certainly, I think, a topic that is very front of mind for a lot of clinicians because it it was the first time that breakpoints for aminoglycosides have basically kind of like ever been updated. Uh, and so it really, it's caused a lot of us to go back and rethink how we're using them and and when they should be used. But essentially uh, the CLSI uh, for enterobacterialis and pseudomonas has either lowered the breakpoints very substantially by at least several dilutions, or then the case of like gentamicin and pseudomonas, they've just outright removed the breakpoint uh, because your odds of finding a pseudomonas with a low enough MIC that we believe we can clinically use the drug are so low that it's just not worth actually having a, a breakpoint anymore. And that's really what's driven these changes. It's not so much that anything has changed with the bugs themselves or the drugs themselves. It's that our understanding of, of pharmacokinetics, so essentially how the, the drug is distributed throughout the body and what concentrations we can reach at various sites has gotten so much more advanced that we, we really understand that in a lot of cases, 
with the old breakpoints, we simply couldn't get enough aminoglycoside to the site of infection for it to actually reach the MICs that we were still calling susceptible. And so what they did was basically lower the MICs to a point where we can be pretty confident that we can clinically give enough aminoglycoside without causing outright toxicities that we are effectively uh, treating what we would call a susceptible organism. No, that's great. I, I love that context because I think too, uh, you know, if you're not really in deep on, on what happens with breakpoints and how they get updated and things, it's a little lost on folks sometimes that, uh, you know, this really takes into account what the drug is doing to the body. So you're also, you know, accounting for how much you have to dose and not completely wreck someone's organs, right? <laughs> and so that comes into play um, with how these breakpoints are established. So given that these have changed, what does that mean for the lab in terms of um, updating breakpoints or using them on their systems? Is it complicated? Sure. And I, before I circle to address that, I actually want to circle back to a comment you just made. I think this idea that that there is a patient in the middle of all this was historically a bit lost in the way we set breakpoints. And, and a lot of the breakpoint changes we've seen in recent years, a, a big driver behind why these are changing is we, we are really trying to factor in the patient aspect and, and the, the therapeutic ability to really give enough drug to reach the MICs that we have been calling susceptible. And so, you know, some of those things are behind the reduction in Pitezo MICs over the years as well, where they were so much higher because in vitro, it seemed perfectly fine, but then it turned out in a person, we just simply couldn't give that much Pitezo without causing a, a very serious adverse effect. Um, in terms of what does all this mean for the aminoglycosides today? Um, so CLSI dropped all their breakpoints. Um, USCAST and UCAST also similarly have dropped their breakpoints in recent years for their aminoglycosides kind of across the board or dropped a breakpoint entirely. Um, but the FDA uh, has chosen to maintain the historic breakpoints, at least for the time being. They did not accept CLSI's um, recommendation to lower them. And so we're in this unfortunate situation where the FDA has one set of breakpoints, and that's the only set of breakpoints that a, a, a diagnostic company can pursue clearance for. And so really everybody is still getting new susceptibility testing cleared at the old breakpoints where clinically most labs, most uh, ID clinicians want to use CLSI or one of these other groups. And so you're stuck having to essentially do off-label validations if you want to do CLSI because a, a manufacturer can't go and get clearance at the CLSI breakpoints because the FDA has chosen not to support them. And so I think in the short term, there's going to be a lot of people talking with um, between the lab, their stewardship program, their ID clinicians about which aminoglycosides are they using in our hospital? Which ones are they are they thinking it's worth the the effort on the part of the lab to do a validation to lower the breakpoint? Because if you know your hospital just doesn't have tobramycin on formulary, why would you go to the trouble of doing a validation? And so making sure that everybody's on the same page and, and targeting efforts where they're going to be most beneficial for patient care. Right. That's that's great perspective. Thank you. I completely agree. Thank you. You know, it's it's always great for me you know, that I've always wanted to learn more and just, you know, we sit there, we do the testing and I read the CLSI and just, you know, tying all these concepts together. You know, I just, I, this has been, you know, definitely great for me. And I hope that the audience, you know, enjoys this as well. Um, I don't know. Is there anything else that you want to ask, Andrea? No, I think Patrick did an awesome job of covering most of my thoughts here. I think he's answered all my questions. I, I completely agree. And uh, Patrick, is there anything else that you want to add before we uh, come to an end on the episode? The only other thing I would say is if, if you have a burning desire to understand why a breakpoint has changed, CLSI uh, has gotten really good about 
publishing content around why they're changing breakpoints, what was the data behind them. And so if you would like to know more, certainly CLSI has a lot of that information. The FDA has also started publishing justification documents for why either they have made a change to breakpoints or why they may have chosen not to support a CLSI breakpoint. And so there's a lot more transparency coming, I think, to this world, even though we may still be stuck in a situation where various groups don't agree on the breakpoint, you can at least get some context around why they're recommending what they're recommending. Great point. Yeah, I like that you said that because uh, I, I recently did a, a collaboration with the Breakpoints podcast and for doing the research for that, like I started watching like a lot of videos and definitely a lot of information, like you said, and uh, there was a great uh, video by Dr. Romney Humphreys, which you know, I was lucky enough to, that she was a guest in one episode here in the podcast, but a great explanation. So a lot of information, a breakdown of the of the toolkit, you know, if you are changing the breakpoints and your validation, and it's a lot of good information. It's just as simple as starting doing a, you know, engine search and saying, okay, uh, breakpoints 2024, and I started finding all this information very detailed and it was very helpful and it gives you a, a better understanding. So I, I completely agree. Uh, and I, I agree. I can't say enough good things about the the CLSI toolkit and some of the videos and educational content they put out with that in terms of really helping people to get their hands around uh, what might need to be done if you if you need to to validate an off-label breakpoint or you need to change a breakpoint for another reason and to give people the tools so they can actually move forward. Yeah, those are really wonderful, wonderful resources. We we ourselves lean into those a lot. CLSI has been really great with providing all sorts of material. I completely agree. So, um, and I just want to remind the audience that if you um, if you have any questions, definitely reach out at letstalkmicrooutlook.com and then we'll take a look at them and we might add them as we prepare for future episodes. Uh, well, um, you know, Patrick, this has been great. And once again, thank you so much for, for taking the time to be in here. And thank you, Andrea, for co-hosting this with me. It's always great when we get together and, and talk micro. Absolutely. Thank you both so much. It's my pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy learning about aminoglycosides. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. Thank you so much for the support, for the feedback. Great things coming your way. So please continue downloading episodes, subscribe to the podcast. I appreciate all the support. And as always, continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. You do such great work. So, as always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, Patrick, continue talking micro. Continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.